It's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, if you're new here, uh, my name is Joel. I'm on the board of uh, elders here. I'm not the normal, regular preacher guy, um, but I don't intend to bring heat, <laughs> I hope. Um, but we'll see. You never know. Um, before we get started, go ahead and turn in your scripture to Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to read it yet, but that way you won't be fumbling through it when I get to it. You have been warned. All right. So in the early 60s, a lot of folk singers were making a living singing the same old songs. Uh, they'd been singing for years and years and years. And singing the same messages, singing the same words, using the same forms uh, they'd been doing, and trying to affect social change around them. And then onto the scene came Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan shook up the folk, uh, the folk music scene really with how deftly he was able to take traditional forms of music and infuse them with uh, lyrics and themes that were pertinent to what was going on in the world around him right then and there. Um, he did it in a way that hardly before and certainly never since had anyone ever so drastically redefined what their craft was and what it meant to be a part of that movement. Um, he reframed the scene around him and he set a bar that, depending on who you ask, has never been overcome by anybody since. What was most shocking about Bob Dylan's rise to fame was how out of the blue uh, his rise was. When you read about his start, he himself famously made up legends and stories about who he was and where he came from to kind of uh, make it unclear just what his history was. But uh, behind it all was just a young kid from rural Minnesota. He came to the big city, he interrupted the status quo, and by breaking all the rules, he redefined what the rules would be from then on out. It was mythic, and it changed things. Similarly, our passage today tells us how Jesus began his ministry. Jesus was from Nazareth. It was a backwater town in an outskirt city in the sprawling Roman Empire. If Rome were Atlanta, then Jesus would have been from way OTP. Um, I just moved into Atlanta in July, and I'm, a, I'm literally like 300 yards from 285. But I'm in there. So all you people who are looking down your nose at me, I can throw a football to it. 300 yards. If I walk out my front door, I literally can see the BMW plant across from 285 and there's just this gulf of traffic and awfulness right in between it. Um, but prior to that, whenever I talked to anybody from Atlanta, some of you in this room, where are you from? I'm from Grayson. Where's that? Uh, and I have to say, I have to back out the geography just so people can understand where I was. Uh, have you heard of Lawrenceville? I think I have. Snellville? Maybe. It's in Gwinnett County. And then, oh, you're from like way up there. Yes. I know. Um, Jesus might have had the same kind of conversation with people. Where are you from? Nazareth? Where's that? It's in Galilee. Where's that? And on and on and on. And in fact, in John's gospel, little side note, when Nathaniel goes to get Philip to tell him that he's found the Messiah, and it's this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, Philip's response was literally, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Is there anything good out of that place, that backwater town? Jesus was a hillbilly. For all intents and purposes, he came from a humble place. And in his own hometown, we'll learn, as you keep reading in Luke's gospel, people who knew him and grew up with him looked at him with a sense of bewilderment. Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't he the guy that strangely doesn't look like his dad? (laughs) He carried around some baggage. It's important to understand this because without it, what Jesus does in the passage we're about to read doesn't quite resonate as well as it should. So keep that in mind as we read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21 together. Now he has just come back from his temptation in the wilderness. And Luke tells us, Jesus returned in power and the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, uh, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus goes to the synagogue like a good Jew. And he takes a turn reading from the scripture, from Isaiah. Only this time he stands up. And this is significant because it was customary for people to read scripture sitting down. To stand up was to take a posture of proclamation. So it's, when you stand up, you're not just reading something. You're about to say something about what you're reading. So already Jesus' actions have set this moment apart. He isn't just about to read from the scroll. He's about to say something about it. So he reads. Now what he reads on the surface is pretty clear. But there are two things significant. What he reads and what he doesn't read. And from these things, we're going to learn a thing or two about what Jesus' mission is and who he believed he was. To the first point, what Jesus is reading in Isaiah refers to the day of Jubilee. And I'm going to go real broad strokes over this uh, because it gets really convoluted. But basically, it was a day in a 50-year cycle in uh, the nation of Israel when all debts between people were canceled. Anybody who had sold themselves into slavery or anybody who had been sold into slavery was set free. Um, It basically restored everything and everyone to equal footing before the law. As far as we know, in all of Jewish history, the day of Jubilee was never honored. It was never recognized. Nothing ever happened. And so it became a metaphor for God's expected restoration of Israel, who had been kicked around the world stage for generations and generations. This is what Israel was waiting on when Jesus came onto the scene. And after reading this passage, standing up, Jesus says, yeah, that thing that you've all been waiting for, I'm the guy who's going to do it. So y'all pay attention. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Some OTP redneck kicking around his hometown in the shadow of an omnipotent empire 
saying to his friends, I'm the one who's going to level all this out. And just think, y'all get to be here to see it. Y'all get to say, you knew me when. This got people's attention. Elsewhere in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus went to synagogue frequently. But this is the only time that the content of Jesus' teaching is ever discussed by Luke. And it's no coincidence that this, the opening salvo of Jesus' ministry, a treatise on caring for those on the edges of society, is what Luke chooses to tell us. The gauntlet has been thrown. Jesus has laid his cards on the table, and there's no secret about how he sees himself and how he sees his ministry. Okay, cool. So what does it mean? How much is there really beneath the surface of what Jesus said? In an elders meeting a few weeks ago, um, Marla was aggravated because her phone kept dying. Um, She'd come to the elders meeting with a full charge, and by like halfway through the meeting, it had gone down to 30%, and it just died while we were there. So Jeff, our resident tech nerd, don't look at me that way. You knew it was happening. Um, He told her the solution, which was you need to restore the phone to factory settings. You need to hit a hard reset on it. Um, That would clear out all the extra processes that were slowing down the phone and running down the battery life. But in doing so, he said, you're going to have to jettison a lot of stuff from the phone in order to save it. Uh, Once it's restored to factory settings, you can put the stuff back on it that you want, but it'll be free of all the other stuff that was making your phone screw up. Similarly, what Christ is saying is that he's come to hit a hard reset. He's here to put everything back to factory settings. Because with all of our own tinkering, with all all of our own solutions, we can't ever fix the problems of the world ourselves. The system is overloaded, it's cluttered, and no matter what we do, all of our efforts in a broken system will only yield broken results. Up to this point, those in Israel who were poor, who were captive, who were blind, people who were marginalized based on traits beyond their control, could and often were left out of society. They were excluded from the community. And Jesus reads here proclaiming the good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, not leaving anybody out, recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And in one sense, it's pretty cut and dry. We all know what that means when we read it. But Jesus is not saying that these are good things to do. He's saying that he is the very embodiment of what it means to do them. He is ordained by the Holy Spirit of God for this purpose. And as such, it isn't just what he came to do, it's who he actually is. And in following Jesus, we are also called to embody it the same way. But the trick is that it isn't just them who were called to, uh, who Jesus came to help. It's each of us. Because at some point in all of our lives, we are them who need to be helped. It's easy when we believe that we're followers of the way that leads to everlasting life to look at others through the lens of, they need my help. And that's not a bad thing, but it shouldn't stop there. The danger that we face as Christians is to only see them as being in need of Christ's grace, and not ourselves. Because we're all in need of hearing the good news in our various modes of poverty, whether it's literal material poverty or spiritual poverty. We're all in need, we're all captive to desires and instincts and habits and obsessions, addictions, grudges, 
We're all in need of having our sight restored to see the world as God sees it. We're all in need of liberty from things which oppress us, whether they're systems which take advantage of the marginalized or systems that have us chasing goals that are not life-giving or life-sustaining. And when we fail to see that even we need the redemptive work of Christ in our lives, we run one of two risks. In our best efforts, we run the risk of emptying ourselves out without ever taking time to fill ourselves back up to the point that eventually we're going to run dry. And then we're no good to anybody. Or worse, we risk building up, ourse- building up around ourselves a false sense of piety where we believe that we're above anybody else's help, we're above anybody's correction, we're above the need for grace. And this is the mission that we're called into. To proclaim the good news to one another, all of us to each of us. We can't look at the world as us and them because Christ looks at all of us with the same loving eyes that see the need for his grace in every aspect of everything that we do and in the lives of those around us. So we can't take for granted that someone knows the good news just because they're sitting here in church today. Every single one of us from time to time 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 encounters struggle with our faith. Some of us hide it well. Some of us can hardly keep it together. But it's important that we as brothers and sisters in the faith keep our eyes on one another just as we keep our eyes on people outside. We can't take for granted that someone is free from some sort of oppression, literal or otherwise. Poverty and captivity and oppression are not just things that happen to people with no money and no home and uh, no freedom in another country. They happen to people in our very midst. And yes, we're obviously called to care for people in material poverty. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But we're also called to care for people whose poverty and captivity are less obvious, whose souls are begging for bread, whose hearts are captive to their pain, whose lives are ruined by the things that they built up around themselves. We can't take for granted that everyone sees the world through eyes of faith. And we can't take for granted that we ourselves have it all together as well. Because not everyone does, and we don't all the time either. Christ came to save all of us. His mission is to bring the justice of God to the earth, and it covers every form of evil that takes hold of us and tries to destroy us. The obvious ones, the subtle ones, all of it. Uh, Joel Green, who was a professor at Asbury Seminary when I was a student there, writes in a book on Luke, It is surely of consequence that though Jesus announces his mission to the poor, Luke never narrates his actually evangelizing the poor so named. Instead, Jesus is continuously in the company of those on the margins of society, able neither to participate as a full partner in social interchange, nor completely rejected. Am I making it clear that Christ's mission covers just, like, everything and everyone? Now, earlier I mentioned that Jesus also left something out. The passage that he reads from Isaiah, just where he stops, goes on to talk about the day of the Lord's vengeance. It's not insignificant that Christ stops before he gets to that word. Because Christ is not interested, nor does he give us license to seek vengeance or retribution from anyone. The day of Jubilee is about God setting things to right so that we can be made whole. It's not about us getting retribution so that we can feel vindicated. 
Whether Jesus leaves it off because he's abandoning it altogether or because vengeance on the wicked can only be laid out by the righteousness of God, we don't know for sure. Probably a little bit of both. But what is clear is that in our position, vengeance is not our mandate. We're here to seek justice in the world. It's God's job to deal with judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one in the position or the power to deal with defeating evil. Y'all just get to work on spreading the good news about who I am and what I've come to do. And sidebar, this is free because this wasn't in my original notes. Um, This isn't to say that we shouldn't speak truth to power, uh, to, to call things out that are wrong when we see them. What it is to say is that our goal, as Christ laid it out, should primarily be to live out the faith in such a way that what we say rings true with what we do and how we live every single day. That's the most important thing. Because if we're speaking truth, but our actions as individuals and as a community of faith don't resonate, then we might as well not say anything at all. Might as well just pack it up and go home. Henry Morton Stanley was a reporter for the New York Herald, and he was sent out to find the missionary David Livingston. And if you've ever heard that Livingston, I presume, that's where that story comes from. David Livingston had gone to Africa. He had done work there for years, and he basically disappeared, and nobody knew what happened to him. So Henry Morton Stanley uh, went to find him, and he did, and they spent some time together. Um, He tried to convince Livingston to return home because Livingston had not been doing well. His health was declining, and he had basically written to friends of his to say that I'm not going to live to see you again on this side of things. He didn't convince Livingston to leave. So Stanley had to go away. And he wrote later that while he was visiting with Livingston, Livingston never tried to outright evangelize him for the gospel. But he marveled at how holistic his grasp of Jesus' mission and ministry was to the people around him, including Stanley himself. And he said, he didn't ever try to convince me with his words, but by the way he lived his life, I knew that if I stayed any longer, I'd never want to leave either. It's about how we live and how we treat others. It's the most important thing. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, speaks of the community of faith as a body. And like our own bodies, each of us is a part that is integral to the health of the whole. We can't say that we're not in need of help of others, nor can we say that uh, we don't have to help somebody else. We're in this together. And I'm sure if you've ever gotten an eyelash in your eye, you can't function at all. I can't. I can't do anything. I'll hang up the phone with somebody. I will leave a conversation. I can't see. My whole body's uncomfortable now. If I'm walking through my apartment in the dark and I hit my knee on a coffee table, aside from saying some things I can't repeat here, I'm going to grab where the pain is. Though your whole body shuts down if one thing isn't in line like it should be. If one member of the body suffers, then we all suffer. Paul would sharpen it a little bit in the book of Romans in chapter 12. He'd tell them to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it up to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Jesus is saying here is, look, this is who I am. The one who's come to set all this back to zero and lay everything equal before Almighty God. I am the day of Jubilee. And this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to set people free from their debt to sin. I'm going to restore their sight so that they can see what God is doing in the world around them. I'm going to give good news to those who are in despair in every single form it takes. And so if we want to be a part of that mission, we all better get humble. Not just in how we serve others, but how we allow ourselves to be served by others. This passage marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it was a mission that would escalate to his death on the cross and reach fruition in his victory over death when he walked out of the tomb. His entire life, his death and resurrection were a hard reset on every system of oppression from earthly powers to the very power of sin itself. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. This is the meal that commemorates the sacrifice that in a way became the day of Jubilee for each of us. So as we prepare our hearts to receive it, I'd like to offer you these moments to reflect. What parts in your lives and in the lives of those around you need to be set back to zero? Are there people who you know are hurting, who are in need, who are ensnared, or who are trapped, who are blinded, who could use a word of encouragement? Are there things in your own life that have trapped you? And in these moments, seek the love of God to manifest itself in your love of others. And for the peace of God to make itself known to you. So that whether you need to share it with someone, or whether you need it shared with uh, yourself today, it would bring us to the assurance that Christ has set everything back in place. And may that knowledge so fill us that we would make it known to others and everything that we say and do. Amen.